0: So, we have another um, second and last English session together.
1: And um, <clears throat> uh, most of the
0: questions are in Thai, but I'll answer in English. And, um, there is an English, two or three English questions. Um, how can we become more disciplined? Do you have any? tips or a thought process or something to do in your daily routine. Thank you so much for your help.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think the the particular um way in which we are uh, instill discipline
0: um within ourselves um will vary according to our personality and circumstance there are some general points um i could make one and, and the <laughs> and And it's a very important one for any bringing about any kind of positive change in your life um whether it's being more disciplined or uh more punctual or or whatever um you know right from the very basic um, elements of social life um and that is a particular way of of reflect- reflecting of thinking about this topic uh, and that is to um, reflect upon, think about um, all of the uh, disadvantages and the difficulties and the suffering um, that you've experienced in your life because of a lack of that quality. So here we're talking about lack of discipline. And really you don't try to push those things away, even if they're embarrassing or difficult. Um, sit down, write them out in a book, you know, and, um, really go through them. Um, and then recognize that unless you, um, really apply yourself, that's going to be the way your life is going to be. It's not going to change if you don't. Uh, bring about some inner change, then it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. Um, At least when you're young, you have teachers and parents and people who are um, giving you advice, maybe even nagging you. Um, But maybe we don't like that or resent it, Um, but it's better than what happens when you get older because uh, now there's nobody to tell you anymore and, and I, as you get um your a householder yourself and having your own family or being in uh, positions of authority you know particularly in Thailand um we know you get less and less feedback less and less direct feedback um and so it's uh, particularly in this culture it's very easy to get into bad habits and never think to shake them um Or not even to be aware, because nobody ever tells you not to your face anyway, so um really reflecting upon this, yeah, this is a problem that I see, and it's a problem because it gives rise to all these kinds of um unfortunate, unpleasant things in my life, and it's not going to get better by itself um and then. And then you take the other side and all the advantages that you can see in having more discipline. And reflect or remembering people who you admire who are self-disciplined. Um, and, um, this, this two, uh, two ways of thinking. It's just basically what we call like pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages. Or in, in Thai, we say couldn't let out. And you have to give time to that. It's not just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really sucks when I don't have any discipline and it would be great if I did. That's, that's, that's not, um, uh, what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about really going into it and going into it regularly because it's through the reflecting on those two topics together, the disadvantages and the suffering of the present habit and the advantages and the, um, and the happiness will come from acquiring that habit that gives you the um the inspiration the gamlang jai, the patience and the perseverance at to stick with a program of of making changes in your life now one of the um, one of the keys um to to making big changes in your life is to make them incremental. I don't know if you know that word, but that means just little by little by little um, like if you think you have to, you've got this big problem and you know you've got to do something about it, and it's just so kind of depressing and intimidating and difficult you just oh, I can't do that no i'm not i just um so so what you do is you you just take one step at a time and um remember reading someone um recounting um counseling doing counseling work in the states only with obese people you know dangerously overweight and um This particular woman, like many people, yeah, yeah, you know, I really would like to lose weight. I would like to, but just can't, just doesn't have the discipline. And uh, the doctor was giving various programs, you know, look, you need to swim or you need to do this just so many times a week. And and, uh, yes, 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 she comes back the week after. Did you do it? Well, no. Um, And this is very, very common, isn't it? And and so he he applies this technique, and he said, "Look, could you exercise for thirty seconds a day in front of the television? Thirty seconds. Can you make a thirty-second a day commitment?" And and the, the woman just sort of, "Yeah, I, I could do that. Thirty seconds." Um and You see another, there's an idiom in English, we say like sin end of the wedge, which means you just start off with something very, very small. But then once you do that, you feel, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. And then you take another little step and another little step until you gradually um, are able to do more and more. So when you see it, as like there's a really big problem and it's just such, it's been such a part of your life for so long. You know, you just don't know where to start. And so it's like all or nothing, so you end up doing nothing. So what you do is you change your perception of the problem, and you you just say, "What can I do? Like, what's the smallest thing I could do?" And and this principle is uh, is applied in, in is a Japanese management um, philosophy, which strangely enough it sounds very Japanese, but they. It was originally devised in America in the Second World War to raise production in the war effort. But it's like if you're in a if you're in a, a business and you sit down and you ask every single person, what is the smallest thing? Just one small thing, very practical thing that we could do today to make this better company or to make this a better community. We're not talking about really big ideas. We should be more this, we should be more that. But what is the one very practical, simple thing that would just uh, improve the quality of our life together? You see, so the idea is you start off like on the micro level and then you work up from that. So um, those are two pieces of advice. One is um, this creating this gam jai and this willingness just to bear with the difficulties of making a change. Through this reflection on the disadvantages of the present habit and the advantages of the uh, the wished for habit, and secondly, uh, to create a program for yourself um, in which you start off in a very modest, very small way. Like, say, you like writers, people with writers' block, you know, you said, Oh, you can't just can't get any words down on paper, you know, because it's just such a big, such a big thing. And then you say, well, okay, I'm going to write for five minutes a day. I'm not going to see. I've got to sit for hours and do, and and I'm just start off with five minutes a day. and, And then you just break the ice, you see, and you create a new perception. Um some other, you know, sort of secondary things you can do. I think there's a lot of um, ways in which um, social media can be used um, in a positive way, you know, rather than just keeping in touch and chatting. Um, But if you have friends uh, also uh, who have the same problem, same as would also like to be more self-disciplined, uh, then creating like a, a line community uh, and then keep in touch. And when you're, you're having difficulties, you have someone who's doing the same thing that can help you and you can help them when they're struggling and, um, using that social support that is possible through modern media, um, uh, to help you, um, when you take on these kinds of, um, challenging projects. Okay. Okay, slight change of topic. Could you please explain the differences between the Theravada? And Mahayana traditions okay this obviously is rather complex and um, topic and and one which is uh, there are different views about this um,
1: so first
0: of all, um, you need to understand that um it isn't Really, such a um, correct comparison in that Mahayana is not a tradition in the way that Theravada is. The word Mahayana is like an umbrella term, it it covers many different um, kinds of Buddhism under one big term. So, there's not sort of one Mahayana. Um, view on this topic or that topic there's one Theravada view and then there are many different views of Buddhist traditions within the Mahayana group so you know although if you look at the statistics for the uh, number of people in the world who uh, Followed the Theravada and the Mahayana, then you say, "Oh, this Mahayana, more Mahayana." But if you break down the Mahayana into the different groups and different uh, traditions, then Theravada comes out as um, the most popular. Um, the Theravada tradition is one which spread southwards from. Northeastern India, where the Buddha lived. And um, after flourishing in South India for some time, um, its main stronghold, its main area of influence was
1: Sri Lanka. And
0: um, the Theravada Buddhism, that we follow in Thailand um, was, say, imported uh, from Sri Lanka. Now, before that was the case, and now we're talking about a thousand years ago, um, there were um, Buddhist monks um, coming over um, from the Andaman Sea from India. Um, right from perhaps the time of the, Aso- um, Emperor Asoka, um, and in the time of the, what are called the Dwarawati, um, civilization, um, and towards the end of the, um, Cambodian or Khmer period, um, of influence, um, because don't forget, all nearly all of Isan and most of central, north central Thailand um, was part of the Khmer Empire at that time, and so we have all these um, um, Khmer temples throughout the country, like in Korat at Pimai, for instance, um, and at the end, towards the end of the Khmer period. Of course, that's the time when Angkor Wat and all these other places were built. Then um, Mahayana Buddhism, imported from India, um, was starting to um, have an influence. So, um, from early days where there are like Theravada, Mahayana, um, then the real turning point in Thailand came about with the establishment of the kingdom of Sukhothai and at that time there was communities of forest monks living in Nakhon Si who had uh, ordained become monks and trained in Sri Lanka and then they would come back um, to Thailand afterwards, or to what was then called uh, Nakhonsitamarath. And the first king of Sukhothai, he was uh, inspired with the forest monks and the meditation monks. And so he sent an invitation um, to this community of forest monks in Nakhonsitamarath to come to Sukhothai and to establish, um, the Theravada Buddhist tradition in, um, in Sukhothai. So there was a, a pre-existing Theravada, um, group of monks originally from, um, uh, Pugan or Pagan. But it was somewhat corrupt at that time. And the king, first king of Sukhothai starting a new, uh, first independent Thai kingdom and wanted a form of Buddhism, which he felt had integrity and was, um, inspiring. And so the, uh, the first, um, uh, community, of, you know, the first monastery established at that time in Sukhothai was the forest monastery. And if you if you go to Sukhothai, you'll see um, that many of the um, Buddhas um, sculpted and, and founded in Sukhothai are in meditation postures. So you know Buddha Buddha images are many different um, styles and um, postures, but the Sukhothai Buddhas are, are usually in meditation posture. So the Theravada tradition um, is based upon certain uh principles one one is that the teachings of the Lord Buddha, which were recorded uh, uh, were recited and um, uh, recorded at the first council that's a big meeting um, um shortly after. The Buddha passed away, are complete. Nothing needs to be added to them or taken away. And that the, um, that all is left is for us to study and practice and realize the truth of them. So we can say that the Theravada tradition is a conservative tradition, that's to say, it sees its role as conserving the Buddha's teachings, which were already laid down um, in their uh, entirety. Now, after the Buddha passed away, the uh, at that time there was no Theravada, of course, um, but different groups of monks started to Um, uh, lead their own different groups based upon different um, attitudes for instance one of the first uh, causes of argument or dissension um, was concerning the monk's discipline the Vinaya and uh, one of the first um, main arguments and it's one that's gone on ever since um, concerns the rule forbidding monks from touching money or using money. And already within some years, of the Buddha passing away, a lot of monks felt that was impractical and didn't really work. And monks just had a little bit of money just for what they needed. It would be better. And so there were a number of different points of the monk's discipline that led to um, a split and then because the monasteries were spread out over hundreds of miles or kilometers and there was very little communication between them then there was um different kind of styles and emphasis and they so it's not really correct to call them sects in the way that you would call um Say groups in, in Islam or Christianity sects, because it wasn't so much they had different beliefs. It was different, just different styles. And if there were differences, it was in the veneer. Um, so many different groups emerged. And one, uh, then after about 500 years, Um, what we call Mahayana really started to develop and number of, um, texts were appeared, which were called Sutta or Sutras, Sanskrit. Um, and they were all saying, and the Buddha said this and the Buddha said that and so the conservatives would say no he didn't he didn't say that that was never recorded um after the buddha passed away you you've written that yourself you see um and so the the reply to this was that at the time of the buddha the, uh, there were certain very profound teachings which, um, the Buddha felt his disciples could not, were not ready to understand. And so he, um, taught them to the Devas and told the, the Devas, Tewada, you know, just to keep these. And then in the future, when these really smart people are born who can understand this, then pass this on. So they're saying, this is why, you know, it says, these are teachings of the Buddha, um, but they don't you know they've just suddenly appeared because they were with the Dewada all this time. So this is like a faith of the Mahayana uh, monks. But if we look at the Mahayana texts which are called suttas or sutras, it's very clear that the philosophy behind them varies from text to text, whereas the suttas in the Pali Canon, in the Pratraipitok, are very clearly uh, one voice. Um, you can pick up any book. Yes, it's the voice of the Buddha. It's the same way of talking. There's So, um, from a Theravada point of view, um, the the teaching that we think of with regard to the Mahayana Sutta is the one in which the Buddha picked up a handful of leaves. And he said, he asked his disciples, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And of course his disciples said, well, the leaves in the forest are so many more than the ones in your hand. And the Buddha said that the Buddha knows so many things, you know, so many things, like all the leaves in the forest. But he doesn't teach all those things, he just takes up the handful of things, only those things that will lead you to enlightenment, to peace and wisdom. So, in the Theravada tradition, we say, yeah, all these different, uh, profound philosophies and everything, uh, we're not saying that they're untrue. We're just saying they're not necessary because the Buddha has already picked out the ne- the ones that we need to know and life's too short, you know, to have to, um, study all that. Okay. The, this is a very big topic and, um, Maybe uh, one one or two other points. The Mahayana tradition was uh, very successful in spreading throughout the world because it was a, what we could call a liberal tradition rather than a conservative tradition, if we can use those two terms. And that meant that when the monks from India went to China and to Korea and to Tibet and all these places, then they were willing to adapt to the cultures of the countries they found themselves in. And their idea was that you would just keep like the essence of the teachings, but in the minor things, we should be willing to adapt in order to be able to share the buddhist teachings with as many people as possible so this this meant it was a very uh it's been called by one scholar a very portable religion and um so buddhism spread you know along the silk road and into all the into um pakistan and afghanistan and uh all those um stan countries like kazakhstan uzbekistan you know Even Iran was uh, a Buddhist country uh, for some time, Mahayana Buddhist, before it was converted to Islam. So very, um, very flexible. But of course, the, the question with that kind of policy or idea is, who decides what's the essence and what's not? what you can let go, and what you keep, keep on, who decides? You see, because it's not always so clear. And so when we get to, like Japan is a good example, then there are Buddhist sects in Japan who, whose basic ideas and philosophy is so far from the original Buddhism of India, that it's almost a different religion.
1: Um, so,
0: for instance, like about I guess uh, eight, nine hundred years ago, then the Pure Land sects, uh, Nichiren, and, and all these different se- and, and various religious figures came, and they they believed that um, this was a time of uh, corruption, and that people no longer have the bharami to become enlightened, and it's very arrogant to think that you do have that, and you should be just humble and accept that. And so you pray to Buddha, uh, Amitabha Buddha. And then the idea is if you pray very sincerely to Amitabha Buddha, then after you die, you go and live in the pure land with Amitabha Buddha, and then you can meditate, and then you can get enlightened. Um, so in this lifetime, it's a life of, um, shouldn't, monks don't need to um, lead a celibate, a monk should get married and just lead a normal life and be humble, and, and everyone should just pray to Amitabha Buddha, yeah. Um, so it's very similar to Christian or any religion where you pray to God um, and the characteristic ideas like fundamental idea of, of Theravada is confidence in your own capacity or potential for enlightenment whether you're a man or a woman or wherever you come from and that's not something that you lose because um, if you're a human being, that means whatever um, period of history you're born in. As long as you, you know, you've got a body and mind, you have the capacity for enlightenment. And so that idea was discarded in uh, um, some Japanese sects, and then in each country, the Buddhism adopted some of the ideas and culture of the countries that they spread into. So um in Mahayana bosom like this um Jangmeekwanim im um and worship of bodhisattvas and uh, so this human beings tend to want to worship things and ask for things and um and in Theravada then we you know we, we uh don't agree with that. So yeah, if you want to go and uh, if you really want to go and, and bow to something and make offerings and then ask to, you know, um, pass all your exams or have a baby or something, then go and do it with a, with a Hindu shrine. Don't be, don't do it with a Buddhist shrine because it's nothing to do with Buddhism. But in, in Mahayana, then, then there's this, um, uh, like sort of, Uh, all these bodhisattvas, and you can pray to bodhisattvas and ask them to help you do this and do that. So um, the idea of um, the meaning of the word Buddha changed. In in Theravada teaching, there's just one Buddha at one time. So now we're in the era where there is um, Gautama Buddha, uh, Jauchai Siddhata. He he became the Buddha, but in uh, Mahayana philosophy, Buddha just means uh, changed its meaning uh, to to mean the highest level of attainment. So in Theravada, this is the highest thing you can realize. You become an Arahant, but in uh, in the Mahayana, the idea. Or uh, particularly in the Vajrayana, which development from it is that you can become a Buddha. Um, So, um, I I was in Tibet, in Eastern Tibet, a few months ago. I told you, and all the villagers were coming out of their houses, and they're all saying, "Oh, a living Buddha! A living Buddha!" (laughs) no, no, I'm a living Buddha. so that, that's, that's their way of, you know, uh, tell, you know, if it was, um, Isan or somewhere like this, very faithful villages, they would say, oh, prah padibati padibacha. But in, uh, in that culture, they would say, oh, he's a living Buddha, you see. So they have a different idea of what Buddha means. So, so many of the key technical terms are understood in different ways. So, it, and, Even in the Mahayana tradition itself, many differences. So, you know, I could talk for (laughs) all day on this, so maybe I'll just leave that one for now.
1: Okay. I'm giving precedence to English questions. Okay. It's an English one. It's a tiger.
0: another change of pace Um, I'm in a long distance relationship and everything is going well but there are times when I really miss my partner could you give any advice on how to deal with strong emotions of
1: this kind yeah um,
0: I think that um I think it's generally agreed that long-distance relationships are tough. Um, but having said that, probably easier um, these days than ever before in history, um, because when you miss someone, you can just Skype them. And um, um, so, you know, when I was young or... <laughs> Or for hundreds of years before that, that would be like magic. Um, so you can you can Skype people, you can phone people, you can text people. You can, so it, it, it's not it's not so bad, is it? Um, but uh, it's it, whatever. I mean, it's difficult, and there are times when strong feelings of missing someone or you know, they're over there and you don't know what they're getting up to, and maybe they're seeing somebody else, and you, how would you know? And all these kinds of thoughts that can go through your mind. Um, so, um, but, well, well, let me tell you, um, just, uh, this isn't really, you know, the same, but when I, when I was a young monk, then so many people, you know, uh, Western monk in, in, uh, forests in northeast thailand the forest monastery was still quite new and people were very excited and couldn't because family um, is so strong and important in in thailand the idea of leaving your family and coming and living the other side of the world and not having any contact or very little contact with uh um i think i was here for you know Few years before uh, I was able to make a telephone call home, at least to write, uh, like aerogram letters once every couple of weeks. But, um, so people would often ask, you know, uh, um, and, um, I didn't, I didn't, um, I wasn't homesick, not at all. <laughs> I mean, that, that, I mean, that might have been. Because I left home when I was very, very young when I was seventeen and um and I never really ever felt at home in England anyway. But um but I, I I appreciated the fact that we have two words in um in in Thai one is kittung, and the other one is reluktung. So I, I would tell people no make kitung ban reluktung. You know, so if you, Nung Po Chai, Chai used to say, uh, Ki um, Na. So, uh, but when you reluctant, you know, you don't, you don't feel sad. You know, when you uh, reluctant, you, you, you think about the things that you love and appreciate, um, in the one, the people you've left behind or the people who are living far away at that time. And you, you feel grateful for those things and for, um, what you've received from those people in the case of your parents. But when you, when you kitung, you know, that, that means that you're, um, you're in a, you're in a battle again, you know, against nature. You know, if you, you ever heard the story about the, the King of England, King Canute, you know, and, and, uh, you know he was so uh, uh the story being that you know he w- he was so convinced he was all powerful they took him to the beach you know and tell the sea to stop the tide from stop coming in you know even a king can't do that um and you know if you're um living in different countries and different continents and just constantly raging against that and and regretting it and then, you know, um, you're just fighting against nature. And um, this is, it's like this, it's this way, this is how it is, you know, and it's this way you've chosen it. You know, you're not being forced to have a long-term relationship. You want to have it. That's why, that's why you have it, because you want it. Um, But, um, you know, I think it's a mistake to think that being in love makes you happy. I mean there's there's sure there's happiness of course, otherwise people wouldn't fall in love. But there's always a shadow to it. You know, even if you live whether you're living together or you're living far away from each other, there's always pain of one level or another involved in loving somebody. And and if you don't have too unrealistic. Expectations of love, do you see? Yeah, um, love is wonderful. It's great to love someone and be loved, but it's not roses all the way, and it's you know never has been, never will be. And there is always um, these kinds of, of pain, and and the pain of separation. Um, that is not necessarily a, a geographical problem. That's to say, you could be living with someone in the same house or see them every day and then you have an argument and you know you just can't bear to speak to that person and then you just feel as like you're miles and might you could be on different continents you know there's just no connection no communication and there's that sense of grief when that happens when you just can't explain yourself or you can't understand or they can't understand you but that, that's part of life, isn't it? Um, so recognizing, yeah, this is, this is what it's like. It's like this. Um, um, and, not, and not making it worse than it is by fighting against it. So uh, the Buddha gave an example, like when something bad happens or something unpleasant, um, he's, he compares it like being shot with an arrow. And he said that being shot by an arrow is bad enough. Um, But when you uh, don't accept the truth of things, when you're fighting against things, and when you're um, allowing your mind just to go round and round and round, it's like you put poison on the arrow. You know, so it makes it so much worse than it needs to be. So um, the most direct. answer to this question is is really what we're doing meditation practice is how you develop mental strength and resilience and you begin to understand how emotion works and you don't identify with emotion in the same way you know, it's not that you don't want emotion, you just shut yourself down and become like a rock. And now that's not what meditation is about. But it means that you realize that the, uh, the meditation, uh, the storm, uh, this emotion, if you can say, is like a storm. If you imagine the ocean and there's a storm, and then the water at the, the top level, the surface level of the ocean, Is, you know, huge waves and, and commotion. But then when you go down, down below the level of the, um, uh, down some meters, some, some yards, then the water is very still. So, um, there are two things going on. The surface level of the ocean is full of, you know, uh, fire commotion and, and, um, huge waves and so on but you go down and it's not that way at all. And in meditation, you develop this, although there are emotions arising and passing away, at the same time, you have the sense of this like body of the ocean, which doesn't change. So you have both the changes of emotion and then the side, which doesn't change together. And it means that um, you don't want to become without emotion, obviously. Um, but you don't experience it in the same way. And this is something that you can develop through meditation. Okay. Okay, I think we're at the end of English. Oh, here's another English. Okay this is a meditation question. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll try to avoid technical language. What are the jhanas you now in passatiwa chan and how can they be attained through meditation? Are they stepping stones towards attaining nibbana? Okay so very um very simply um, the paths of meditation. If you take a, a meditation object, um, you immediately encounter difficulties, and these there are five main kinds of, of um, obstacles that arise um, during this first period of meditation. Uh, And it's it's not an initial thing. It takes years or your whole lifetime to deal with these. Um, But the first first kind of obstacle is when your mind just wants to think about things that we enjoy thinking about. So you get bored with the meditation and you want to be thinking about holidays and going shopping and food and boyfriends and girlfriends and, you know, things that when you think about them, it's like really uh and really um learn you see so that's that's one obstacle the second one um is like negativity and it can be you're sitting there and suddenly you just think about what somebody did and somebody said and how much you hate them and then all these kinds of negative thoughts or it can just be a little, um, Ordinary aversions, you know, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too early, it's too late, I'm too hungry, I'm too full, I'm this and that, and why is he like this, and why is she like that, and why do we have to do this, and all that that, that kind of com- negative commentary in your mind. That's the second obstacle. The third one is sleepiness and dullness and laziness. And the fourth is mental agitation and um, anxiety and guilty feelings, and the fifth is doubt and confusion so these what would we call the newan or new not are the work that that you're doing in meditation, learning to see these things, learning how to deal with them. so if you persevere. Um, these, um, hindrances, um, become weaker and weaker until eventually they disappear. So that's, that's when the five hindrances are absent, when there are no hindrances in the mind, this is the first stage of samadhi. Okay. Now, at this stage, Apart from the absence of the hindrances, then the mind is very or also almost automatically focused on the meditation object, um, and it, um, it it focuses and it it uh, penetrates the meditation object almost effortlessly, and there's a sense of um, joy and well-being and unity in the mind. Now these these characteristics or, or features um, of the mind become stronger and stronger until we reach uh, when they become uh, stabilized, then um, the mind is said to enter into the first jhana or Chan. Now, um, following this, as meditation develops, there is a process by which the mind becomes more and more subtle. And that means the most, the coarser um, elements of the first jhana disappear. And if that here um, is two, it's called vitaka and vijara. Now in Thai this usually translated as vitok, vijan. but you have to understand that it doesn't mean like vitok and vijan as we would use those words everyday language. They these a special meaning. So it, it means that there's no longer with these two disappear there's no longer a sense of you're concentrating or you're focusing on an object. Uh, the mind is still um and there's inner silence. And so now the the factors of of rapture or joy and well being um and um unity of mind become very clear. Then as the, the meditation progresses that's the second jhana, third jhana, the sense of rapture and joy disappears because it's still kind of an excitement of the mind. Uh, and then um, there's the deep, very profound sense of happiness or well-being, and then that even that fades away, and the mind contains the fourth jhana in which the um there's usually at this point there's no sense you don't even feel there's any breath anymore, there's no body anymore, there's nothing there's just a sense of knowing, there's just the mind like pure mind. And so coming out of that, um, one of those jhanas um, into um, the pre-jhana state, then the mind is very, very powerful. And that is the time in which the practice of vipassana can um, uh, can be pursued most effectively. So, the role of jhana or samadhi is that it prepares the way for the wisdom faculty to penetrate the three characteristics: Drailat, Anichang, Tukang, Anatta. So, it's not that jhana in itself is nibbana, but it um, gives the mind the strength and the brightness and the sharpness and the clarity which um, enables um, vipassana. Okay, so that's a technical term. So we're going from long-term relationships to Makpondipan and uh, back again. So this
1: is... Um,
0: Okay, um, Yes, at last, a question about ghosts, I thought
1: yeah. <laughs> Okay, there's still, there's two questions here.
0: One,, uh, is there a spiritual world? If so, what is it like? Um, well, yeah, that's a very um vague um title, isn't it? A spiritual world. Um, there are there are um many um kinds of beings which uh we are not, as usual normal human beings, able to see and hear, and that's not. I think difficult to understand if you, if we compare with just on a, on a, um, more, uh, mundane level, um, animals like dogs, dogs can hear things that we can't hear. And there's very many animals that can see things that we can't see. Um, because our ears can only hear a certain range of sounds. And other animals can hear a larger range, um, so there are all kinds of things sounds and um, sights that um, we can 't see we can't register simply because we don't have the instruments our our senses are not sensitive enough um, but that of course doesn't mean that they're not there um, and uh, some people can see. Spirits and things, and, um, without any meditation training. And this is usually, um, just something that they've, uh, a gift that they've inherited from past life. Um, some people, some monks, some nuns, some meditators, um, are able to perceive, um, spirits and so on. But this isn't really, the um the most important point you know, though the important point is um you know well, how should we relate to spirits and things, because also you know before i excuse me before I go on to that point, um it's true that some people do see spirits, but a lot of people see things which they say are spirits and they're not, as you know, so. You know, maybe 90% is upatan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, ha- having said that there are spirits doesn't mean that every time someone says they see one, that they do. Um, you know, often they they can be mentally ill or it's just, um, you know, just through power of sort or boom bang or they watch too many ghost movies and, um, but um, the the important thing as Buddhist um, is that we don't see these beings as anything special. You know, they're just uh, fellow travellers, if you like. Or in the Buddhist idiom, we say they're companions in birth, old age, sickness, and death. Bin puen gerd gajip thai. Um, and we don't think that they have some special power that we can offer them pig's head or something like that. Then ask for kind of special favors, you know, um, because even if you can, they say, even if you can, um, contact some, some, someone from the spirit realm. Okay. And they say, you know, I'm, Rattaganti Ha, you know, or I'm or Queen Cleopatra or something like that. How do you know they're telling the truth? Uh, why, why is it that, you know, when people do, you know, song or something, it's always like really famous people, you know? It just seems to me uh, just a little bit unlikely, you know? And um, and how can you trust these kind of How could you trust anybody who takes a bribe, you know? Because that's basically what you're trying to do when you make offerings, you're offering a bribe. So basically, if there are the spirits, the ones that you're contacting are the corrupt ones who take bribes, you see? And how can you believe what they say? Um, so uh, it's better to, um, you know, keep an open mind you know, in, in both ways. Yeah, there are such things. There are beings that we can't see. Um, and, um, uh, you know, um, people tend to be f- afraid about this, but there are all kinds of things that we can't see. Um, you know, like radio waves and, 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 uh, all kinds of radiation and, and, and stuff. Um, but, why do we think that these things are malevolent or they're going to do something to us? I mean, in, certainly in the case of uh, people trying to lead a good life, then the kind of unseen beings that are going to have any effect at all are going to be the devas, not the pe or you know things that are frightening and and malicious, um, like the the deva, are really. Drawn, it's like a, a goodness is a magnet for, for Tevada. They love goodness and kindness. Um, and, um, they are able in certain cases to provide some protection. But it's not, um, something that we, we need to really think about very much. You just do what's the right thing to do. And, um, that's a protection against, Malevolent forces and a drawing of positive energy to you. To what extent that is present and exists, we don't know. Um, but basically, whether there are or are not such beings, um, the way that you live your life, um, doesn't, shouldn't be affected by that. Um, because if you're If you're leading a trying to lead a good life, whether or not there are unseen beings, you'll receive the benefits from that. If you're leading an unskillful and foolish life, whether or not there are unseen beings, you'll receive the the, the fruits of that. Um, And none of these beings are going to be able to prevent that happening.
1: Okay, how many of you have seen a ghost? Hmm. Anybody? No. How many of you are afraid of ghosts? Yes. Okay.
0: Mada. Ta eat five. Um, so I've already um explained this point i think that um something uh with how we decide on something is Baab or not is by looking at the intention so what is the intention here so um, somebody might say, well, the intention is tell a white lie so as not to hurt someone's feelings or to make them feel better. But no, the actual intention is not that. The actual intention is to say something that you know is not true. So whenever, for whatever reason, you say something that you know is not true, then that is ba. Okay? It might not be. Yeah, in this case, if you have you know you want to save somebody embarrassment or or pain, then it's um be very you know weak um baab or patkamma. but it's still ba because you have the intention to lie. Now the um, this idea that you know you should the that you have a choice. Um or two you have two choices. This is a false dilemma. You know the idea you have one, you tell the truth and that person's upset, or two, you tell a lie and they're happy. So which do you do? But it it that's not the case. So if you're practicing um uh, the Dhamma, then it's a challenge to your wisdom. So you're, what you're thinking in your mind is, "Shall I, you're not thinking, shall I tell a lie and keep them happy? Or should I tell them the truth and risk them being upset? Um, yeah, I do like your hair in that style. It's lovely. No, you see, you don't. Um, what you do is you ask yourself, how can I, um, one, tell the truth, or not tell a lie, and to avoid hurting that person's feelings. You see, it's not a either-or situation. It's a false dilemma. So this is, how can I respond uh, in a way that I don't lie, and I don't hurt that person's feelings, okay? So it's not so easy. That's why it's a training. That's why it's a kind of education. Hmm. So let's see, someone has their hair cut and you think, oh, and they say, do you like it? What would you say? Okay, ask the boys, your girlfriend cuts her hair. And she says, what do you think? Who's got a good answer?
1: Or maybe you like it. (laughs) Hmm.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, um, anybody other girls can answer. You have your boyfriend that's haircut and um, if you like it then I like it mm.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay, that's a good one. Um, uh, my experience is they won't accept that one. Yeah. <laughs> I remember trying that one out myself, yeah, anybody? Or somebody takes hours cooking you a meal, you know, and you know, you can hardly get it down your throat, and they say, is it delicious? So what do you say? Mm. Yeah, okay. I'm not putting you on the spot, but you just give that, give it some thought. You know, because it's not the case that you have to lie to tell someone uh, to keep somebody happy in that way. You know, be skillful, be thoughtful, um, and the the tort. You see, um, the the disadvantage is that. There are a number of disadvantages. One is you know who decides what's a white lie? you know what when does a white lie become a gray lie, and when does a gray lie become a black lie? you know where's where's the boundary you know um and and sometimes you know you say, ah, oh, it's just to keep them happy, you know, not afraid you'll hurt their feelings, but often you're not being honest with yourself. It's just because you feel awkward. Or you feel anxious, or you're worried they won't like you so much, or you have a certain image. And, and so there are all kinds of other things that are coming to, um, play a, play a role here. And the, um, the other thing is that, um, any kind of relationship, you know, um, it, what it needs more than anything else, I think, in long term is trust. Um, you know, if you lose your trust in somebody, you know, you can never really feel at ease. Um, you can never really feel comfortable, um, in, in any real way. And, and so if you find someone you love lies to you, Even if, you know, you you think, yeah, it's quite likely that it's just a white lie. But you can't forget that because you know, oh, he or she is someone who will, under certain circumstances, tell me a lie. And then, you know, you can't help thinking, well, if they're willing to lie about this, then maybe they're willing to lie about something else. If they're willing to lie about small things, maybe in certain cases where there's a lot of pressure or they're really afraid that they'll lose us or something, maybe they lie about important things, you see? So it's like a it's just like a little crack in the in the damn wall, you know. Just just one just one little lie, when it's discovered, then it can change a whole relationship. Just one small thing can have a huge effect. No one um <clears throat> So, this is why uh, in relationships, telling the truth is so important. And I'm not saying that you should tell everything, you know, because some things you don't need to share, they're private. And maybe you, you have some strong feeling. Um, and <clears throat> if you, uh, this is one of the values of a long distance relationship, you have a strong feeling, and then by the next time you Skype, you've forgotten about it. Um, But if you're with somebody in the moment, you know, you have to feel honest. You know, I have to really say, I'm really angry with you about this. You know, I really love it. And and something really small becomes something very big. So being honest doesn't mean you have to reveal everything that happens, everything you think and feel. Um, But it means not uh, lying and distorting and exaggerating and hiding things from each other. Um, and that's how trust is developed. And, you know, what, what can be, what could be better? You know, what, what, you know, so, what could be more valuable than to have somebody, you know, I could trust that person with my life. You know, have you, heard, do you know people like that? You could say, I know that I can trust that person with my life. Um, I and mean, you know this is one of the things that um wonderful things about becoming a monk you see you say oh yeah monks it's a tough life maybe and you know give up all these things but you have the best friends that you any human being could ever have you know you can look around it's not like you can think of like one person in the whole world that you could trust your life to you can think of 10 and 20 and 30 and 50 or even more <clears throat> so that that commitment to truth um, provides community and, and sense of um, uh, warmth and, um, and stability. That's um, such a wonderful thing. So this is why, I, you know, it may not seem like a big deal yeah. telling white lies, but um, the positive force of truth and honesty um, is uh, amazing. It's incredible, um, and uh, really like you to consider that.
1: Okay, I think maybe one more question. It's a simple one, some long one.
0: เอ่อทําอย่างๆ
1: Okay, well, I'm not, um,
0: I think that there's um, forgiveness or is another word that we use so frequently, and yet we don't really stop and ask us, what does What does it mean to forgive somebody? What what do we mean by that? Does anybody have a good definition of forgiveness? What do you mean when you say forgive somebody? What does that involve, forgiving somebody?
1: Yeah, that's good. That's my answer.
0: Uh-huh. Yes, that is a, I, I would say it's a very good answer because it was more or less my answer. <laughs> so we agree. what um, the the point um, I, I I really like to make is we think like um, forgiving uh, means that we shouldn't have any uh, hurt feelings or we should forget or we shouldn't um, think about it anymore or put it behind us. Um, and so on, but what that um, entails, you know, is, is often this idea that we should be able to stop feeling in a certain way. You know, we shouldn't. Uh, we've forgiven them now means we're we're not um, angry anymore. But it, it's more forgiving. Somebody um, is uh, really. Um, is on the level of sila or conduct, body and speech. When we forgive somebody, means that we, um, will not harm them. They don't have to worry that we're taking, we'll take revenge on them, that we'll try to, uh, create suffering for them in the future to pay them back. So, when it's in the realm of action and speech, it's something that you can just decide. You know, like today, I'm going to forgive them. It means I'm not going to try to take any kind of revenge or make them feel unhappy in any way. But in terms of the thoughts and the anger and the resentment um, and uh, uh, so on, You can't just decide not to have those feelings anymore because you've forgiven them because willpower doesn't work that way. You can't just make a decision not to feel a certain way anymore, even if it would be good if you could. But it's a practice of meditation or being mindful when this angry thought comes up, um, Then you recognize it. This is an angry thought. I'm not going to follow this. And you put it down. Um, so it's the, it's the effort to let go. It's not actually letting go. That's maybe a long time in the future, but, um, you start off in a practical sense of how you act and how you speak. And then your determination is not to follow and not to indulge in and not to take pleasure in these thoughts of revenge. So um, if somebody has acted very badly towards you, then uh, it's inevitable you're not going to trust them in the same way. You're not going to feel so comfortable in their presence. And that's the kama that that person has created. and. Um, I think it's quite, uh, normal and, and natural. Um, if they're someone that you, um, that you have to meet regularly, socially, then just be with how it is right now. Yeah, it's like this. You know, you don't, you don't want to be, to get close to that person anymore, but you're polite to them and you, um, you don't create any problems for them. And then just gradually, um, things, tend to um, work out for themselves. Often you just find drifting yourself, drifting away, you don't see them so much anymore, and that's all right too. Um, but it's taking care of your mind and not allowing your mind to indulge in and to take um, pleasure in negative, angry um, thoughts. But they may still pop up in your mind every now and again. And that's just uh, like an echo from something in the past. Okay, so I think that's enough for this morning. And we've got um, questions left over for the afternoon session. Um, Also, if anyone has any new questions, then please feel free to add them to the pile.